the people who, who are vaccine hesitant actually have very good reasons for being vaccine hesitant. Welcome back to Mind Matters. I'm Harrison Cayley. I've got here Elon Martin and Adam Daniels. And we're finally going to wade into the morass of you know what. <laughs> It'll become clear what we're talking about. I want to start with just reading a few excerpts from a blog. Um, I am originally from Alberta in Canada, where the convoy protests, the trucker convoy protests are currently going on at the time of recording. And this came up on my Facebook feed, and so I read it. So an acquaintance of mine posted a link to it. It's a blog by a, an Albertan. The blog's called Heart of Gold, H-A-R-T, a lifestyle blog by Paige Deneen. And the title of this post is called Let's Update Our Definition of Freedom. Now, I'm bringing this up because it is, I'd, I'd probably say from my, like, you know, my circle of Albertan acquaintances, I'd probably guess based on, um, you know, observable posting trends that probably 90, 95% of my Canadian acquaintances would agree with this 100%. Mm -hmm. Nice, interesting juxtaposition of percentages there. Totally accurate. Um, I, I'm an expert at, at guessing random percentage, percentages. Just trust me on that. But um, with that in mind, I want to read a few excerpts. So starts out, she kind of says that, uh, yeah, I know everyone's burned out, etc. Um, our family has always joked about Alberta being the lawless Wild West. But lately, it's funny. It's not funny. It's true. And she says that, okay, I respect truckers in the industry, etc., but my opposition to the convoy and protests has nothing to do with a lack of support for the industry and everything to do with the obligation we have as humans to do the right thing. So there's several more quotes I want to read, but right there is the start. Now, maybe a, this may or may not be a funny uh, anecdote, but I was on YouTube and as a Star Wars fan, came across a, a video on uh, just an old game that's, uh, that I never played. Uh, or I, I, did, I did play a Star Wars game when I was a teenager. I can't remember which one it was. It was probably on Super Nintendo. <clears throat> but this was a game considered to be a great, you know, a great game and probably the best Star Wars game called Knights of the Old Republic. Oh, Adam knows what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. And so there's these scenes. So it's kind of like, I guess you'd call it a, an RPG of sorts. You, you walk around, you go on quests, you have fights and stuff and you you solve things and you progress along the storyline and so it starts on this planet where um aliens are discriminated against, discriminated against so aliens the, the upper levels of the cities don't like aliens so they try to keep aliens on the lower levels and so you can walk around and interact with npcs and one of the npcs is this crazy racist um like doomsayer kind of guy and so you can go and talk to them and one of the th things about the game is that you can you can either respond in all your interactions in a in a light side of the force way or a dark side of the way, uh, dark side of the force way, and thereby become either more like more like a Sith or more like a Jedi. 
And so, of course, in this one little scene, he's this, there's this guy saying these things like, oh, you're an alien lover. And, 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 and so you've got your responses. And your light side response is pretty much to say, I can't believe you're such a bigot. You know, you're a jerk. I'm leaving, you know? <laughs> so it's like, it's, it, and it, it just struck me as so funny, but so representative of a particular mindset. And, um, and, and like, you know, that's, that's kind of, I'd say that's probably kind of my mindset, my go-to mindset. That's how I was kind of, that's how I've kind of always been. But I think that kind of response is, at least now that I'm a bit older, is completely um, harebrained, like stupid. It's um, for, for a number of reasons, one of which is what do you stand to gain by that? Um, what do you hope to gain by that? By just telling this person that you disagree with who might have what you consider object, uh, objectively reprehensible views that, oh, you're a bigot. The only thing you gain by that is making clear that you disagree with him. You don't get anywhere closer to understanding where he's come from, coming from or changing his mind. You just say, you're a bigot, like, I'm out of here, like in a huff, in a huff of indignation. And you walk off and then you like, well, you don't get a light side point for that, but you have to stay in character. So you, the, the way to actually like have an interaction is to actually talk to people. And so there are two examples. One I, I always bring up, even though I always forget his name, Daryl Brown, I can't remember his last name. The, the musician who, um, who talks with KKK guys mm -hmm. and like converts them out of being white supremacists. And he gets there not by approaching them and um, putting on his SJW face and saying that they're, they're bigots and how dare you, how dare you, sir? How absolute dare you? No, he talks with them, right? And so, well, it's, it's a silly example because it's just a video game, but in a, in a real life situation, like if Jedis were real, they might have more success by actually engaging in a dialogue with this person and taking them seriously, but through the course of the dialogue, presenting new ideas and seeing where they're coming from and seeing if perhaps they can, you can get them to acknowledge that maybe there's a different way of seeing things. And maybe you can, you can admit yourself that you haven't looked at things in a certain way, even if you don't agree with what, with, with, um, where this person has gone with their, with their beliefs, with their, um, thoughts on the world or whatever. Not non-confrontational. Yeah. Non-confrontational. So right back to this article, the, it, this is kind of like the first, the first thing that sticks out. Okay, the, the obligation we have as humans to do the right thing. Now, tying this back to our Collingwood discussion, it's like, okay, well, let's look for presuppositions. Let's, well, what's the, what's the, what's, what is a presupposition from this sentence um, uh, that, that isn't acknowledged? Well, it's the idea that this is the right thing, that I have a crystal clear idea of what the right thing is, and you're not doing it. And we can all agree that this is the right thing to do. But is it so clear? Is it ever so clear? Um, as we'll see as we go through just a few more quotes from this article, it, it, um, no, it's not that clear. And it's clear that you're not even, this author isn't even clear on why she believes that this is true. Um, background for this, highly suggest reading The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt to understand where people with differing views on politics, religion, social policies, where people are coming from and why they, why they think the way they do. Because it's clear that, uh, that Page hasn't read Righteous Mind or doesn't have an intuitive understanding of the, 
the findings and the, the, the stuff in that book about why people are the way they are. She goes on. Getting a vaccine to prevent your grandma or immunocompromised nephew from ending up in the hospital is the right thing to do. Limiting social circles during waves to prevent hospitals from surpassing capacity is the right thing to do. Sure, it can be hard, but it's also the only way to get through this with our humanity intact. Now, like I said, probably most of my acquaintances in Canada would agree with this. I don't. I think it's vastly oversimplifying matters, because um, first of all, okay, getting a vaccine to present your grandma or immunocompromised nephew from ending up in the hospital is the right thing to do. Now, when you set it up like that, of course, who can disagree, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to prevent their grandma or immunocompromised nephew from ending up in the hospital if they've got one. Presumably. Well, I guess, you know, some people might not like their grandma very much or their nephew, you know, maybe they're kind of wishing something would happen to their nephew. But those cases aside, again, th so this was written recently. This was <clears throat> written in the, you know, during the convoy protests. So at this point, we know, and it's publicly acknowledged on the news by, by major science pushers, um, like all, all the big names and big heads that you see uh, on the news, that... COVID vaccines don't prevent transmission of the virus. You can get a, you can get a virus, not just COVID, well, you can get COVID from someone who is vaccinated and from someone who is non-vaccinated. So if you're getting the vaccine to prevent, well, so you might get a vaccine in order to, present, to, to prevent this from happening. It won't necessarily prevent it from happening. So this is the first thing is that when we're dealing, when we're looking at these kind of issues, there seems to be a total disconnect between what actual probabilities are and how you look at them and how things actually play out in the real world and the, the kind of obsessive compulsive rule-based um, like order that you have to do this or you do this. And there's no middle ground. There's no way of looking at it that acknowledges that there's any kind of complexity in the issue. Because it's not that simple. It's not that simple that getting a vaccine will prevent you and you're, and will prevent you from transmitting the virus to someone else. It might. Well, and it, I'll, I'll go further. That even, well, there's all kinds of statistics that we're going to have to get into from another article that we're going to focus on. Mm -hmm. But I, I will say this: like vaccines are effective. Their their effectiveness wanes over time, over a period of months. To the point where when they are at their least effective, you can say that perhaps that a person who has been fully vaccinated, the definition of which changes over time, who might be less likely to transmit the virus, but by what degree? And then when you take that into account, let's say you have two people, one has like a 30% chance of transmitting the virus, and one has, one has a 35% chance of transmitting the virus. Does that mean that the one that is 5% more likely because they didn't get vaccinated, is, is there a way of measuring and like tabulating how it is the, the right thing for the person who was vaccinated, who has a 30% chance to do it, but it was the wrong thing for the person who wasn't vaccinated, who has a 35% chance of doing it. Mm -hmm. And what if the, the one who was 30% because they got vaccinated, transmits the virus, and someone gets sick and dies, does that mean that they 
are absolved of their sin because they they did the right thing by getting by getting um, by getting vaccinated, and then it didn't work out the way they wanted the, the, the way they expected it to. Or for a person who doesn't get a virus and doesn't end up transmitting the virus to anyone, does that mean they've still committed the the sin of perhaps potentially getting someone sick? Like. To me, that it doesn't make any sense because it do, that's not the way the real world works. The real world is a is a is a world where risks like this are always like probabilistic. There's there's never a, a a strict chain of causation where you did this, therefore you're good, and nothing ever bad nothing bad happens because you did the right choice, or you did this thing with, which I think is bad, and then bad things happen, and therefore you are guilty because it's all your fault, because you didn't make this choice that I think you should have made. The world isn't that simple. But in a lot of people's minds, it has become that simple, and we'll get into the reasons. But first, just a couple more quotes. Because the, the name of the article is, let's update our definition of freedom. So she writes, freedom shouldn't mean getting to do whatever we want without considering the consequences of, for others. Now, I think that's a totally reasonable statement, because I think that Practically everyone who has ever thought about freedom or written about it, like in a philosophical or political philo philosophical um, context, that's what they think about freedom. It's freedom does not mean we should get to do whatever we want. And like if you look at the the libertarians, um, who's who have liberty liberty in their name, freedom in their name, they don't believe that that liber liberty or freedom means just getting to do whatever you want. Um, so. Right here, I get the the impression that we're setting up a straw man un, um, unintentionally, because that's that no one no one really believes, except for psychopaths and politicians, that freedom should mean to be getting to do whatever we want. You know, politicians like to be able to do whatever they want. Um, psychopaths like to be to to be able to do with whatever they want, and they like to use freedom for that the, the word freedom for that purpose. But no one serious ever actually believes that. So, and the reality is that asking you to help give the people around you a fighting chance at staying healthy through the use of inconvenient mandates is not the same as oppression. It's decency. So it's decent. It's common decency to use mandates to get people to give other people a fighting chance at staying healthy. I won't comment on that because we'll get, we'll probably get into that when we discuss the next article that we're going to look at. And then Next, the next doozy. Um, after a little bit of, um, uh, well, after a little bit of something. Only white people can band together to hold communities hostage, close borders, break laws, and call it patriotism instead of terrorism. Mm. <laughs> <clears throat> so that, this actually made me do a double take because um, first I wasn't sure what she was saying because she used the word POC in a context that wasn't quite clear that she was talking about people of color, but then it was, then it became clear. But then I, I was like, what planet do you have to live on to think that that is true? Um, maybe you've just been watching like the news where they show little like five second clips of these protests going on because there are people of all colors on all backgrounds in these protests. Mm -hmm. There are black people, there are Sikhs, you know. There are Asians, Hispanics, Hispanics. There are people um, who are not. Uh, well, there are Eastern Europeans who are white, but with a totally different cultural background than than <coughs> your every your, your average, you know, many generation Canadian. So I think that was 
just silly. But then we get the explanation. Then we get what's going on here. Now this will this will get into our next article. She writes. So while I'm embarrassed, I'm also scared. Every parent knows that when your kids are throwing a tantrum, an utter meltdown, you don't give in. Because if you do, they learn that all they have to do is yell loud enough, and they can get whatever they want. And the last thing that I want is for people who don't believe in peer-reviewed science, supported by doctors and scientists across the world, to dictate what the future of our province and our country looks like. So there's a whole lot in there. First of all, she's scared. As, as I said, we'll get into that. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's kind of sad reading this article and ones like it. Um, but look at what's hidden behind this sentence. Every parent knows that when your kids are throwing a tantrum. So in this, it is the protesters who are kids throwing tan a tantrum. And it is the government who is the adult, the parent, that has to step in mm -hmm. and can't give in to the demands of the toddler throwing a, throwing a tantrum. Mm -hmm. Well, to Paige and everyone else who might agree with this, have you considered that maybe it's the politicians who are the, the toddlers and it's the parents who are in, engaging in a non nonviolent way of trying to instruct the the toddler who has um, presumed to become the parent in the relationship mm -hmm. to show them that no you can't actually do this there's something wrong with the way you're behaving and I'm going to express my displeasure and the, and the fact that you can't get away with it but the toddler just has so much power that you know it's kind of useless because one thing you know as a parent you know, I'm not a parent, so I'm just, I'm just going to butt in and tell you how to do your parenting. I know parents <laughs> love it when uh, non-parents do that. But there's an, another dynamic of parenting that should be looked at here. And that is when your kid isn't doing something that you want them to do, the way to get them to do it isn't to beat them. You know, oh, you know, I, I know, the, I know the, I, I know the impulse because I can feel it even as a non-parent. When a, when your kid is misbehaving, you just want to slap them you know, to get them to do what you want to do. But no, that doesn't work. Because when you just beat up your child or coerce them to do something, it makes them resist even more. You know, it's like quit crying, so you smack them and they cry harder. Quit crying, you smack them and they cry harder. Why doesn't it work? Why doesn't beating up my kid work and do what I think it wants, what, what I want it to do? Mm -hmm. It's because that's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. This too we'll get, we'll get into in the, the, the next article. It's, you have to... You, your your approach and your approach in life and the things you engage in, if you want them to work, they should be in aligned with reality. What I'll call reality, human nature. Mm -hmm. There are certain things about human nature where if you do one thing, you're going to get a certain response. If you act like a parent, you know, if the government is acting like a parent, treating their people as their their dissatisfied people as children throwing a tantrum, what are you going to get? You're going to get more people acting more like they're throwing a tantrum from a certain perspective. You're going to get more people who are angry at you and who don't want to do a goddamn thing that you tell them to do because you're being such an overbearing son of a bitch. So maybe consider that, that there's more going on than just this simplistic notion of the, 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 the governmental leaders as parents and, and the, and the, the people around them as just these children that, that need the, the, the loving, you know, the loving hand of the parent to, to tell them what's right and tell them what to do. Not a, not a good look, not a good uh, take on what politics is. And then as for peer-reviewed science supported by doctors, we'll get into that too. 
And then finally, just to kind of reinforce the point about the about Paige being scared, my family and I will gladly wear masks for the next for the next decade if it means potentially saving someone's life. Now, I don't think this is noble. I th- again, I think it's sad because this has been made such an issue that it's like people's vision has been narrowed onto one thing. And that that one thing is the only thing that matters to the exclusion of everything else. Because think of all the other things that you could do that would also potentially save someone's life. You could never drive again a day in your life because every time you drive, you take the chance of accidentally getting in an accident and killing someone. Mm -hmm. You could potentially save someone's life if you chose never to drive again. You could potentially save someone's life by shutting yourself in your room and not doing anything for the rest of your life. Therefore, you have no interactions with anyone else and nothing even accidental can happen that you, that you, you know, accidentally bring into the world. You can totally shut yourself off from life and become completely detached. And therefore, you won't have an impact on the world at all and potentially save many, many people. That's a very interesting uh, analogy, Harrison, because as we speak, we have uh, Pete Buttigieg, part of the Biden administration, who uh, and who would agree with with all of the more coercive uh, techniques of uh, implementing mandates, who is actually pushing for a kind of zero uh, driving yeah. uh, um, policy whereby most people will be using uh, bicycles or public transportation or um, or succumbing to the incredible increase in costs of uh, gasoline and new vehicles that would effectively keep people isolated, uh, all on the all on the um, the the motivation that we must not have one more death on the road. So there you go. And it's it's ridiculous because you can't eliminate risk from life. Mm-hmm. Risk is an is an inherent part of life. There is always there are always going to be risks. Some you can have a pretty good idea about, some you can have no idea about, but part of the art of living is to have an awareness of that that there are risks that you take. That that and and that people should should like in a free society people to a, to a degree are able to to Take those risks into account and make decisions based on them. Because someone can look at the statistics of, for car crashes and say, oh, I never want to drive again. Well, fine, you know? Mm-hmm. But millions of people every day take that risk because the, the ch- they, they see the potential, you know, um, ease of, uh, of living their life or the, the potential benefits from being able to drive from point A to point B as vastly outweighing that minimal risk of, uh, of getting in a car accident or potentially like you know, accidentally killing someone on the road. And it's not so simple as we'll see that, that the, like the decision of the people who are vaccine hesitant to not take a vaccine, it's not so simple that they are doing it for completely selfish motives that they just don't care about other people. That's why I brought out, brought up righteous mind is because for, for people like Paige, I get the impression that they, that they have the impression that all people who, who haven't been vaccinated just are completely selfish people that don't care about other people Mm -hmm. when that is simply not true. Just like it's the tendency of liberals to look at conservatives and think that. Whereas, um, because liberals really only care about care and compassion and, you know, what's the other one? The, one of the, the moral taste buds, the five moral taste buds, but conservatives also care 
They also have care, but they also value things that liberals don't value. Mm -hmm. So when liberals look at conservatives, they see these strange creatures who who don't value the things that we value. That, that, that's the, the, the example from Knights of the Old Republic. Look at this, uh, at this old racist guy and, and just say, well, where is he coming from? And then the, well, but, well, totally different example. But then you, if, you have, <laughs> if you have conservatives who I'm not saying are all like the, uh, the old racist guy in Knights of the old, old Republic, you have conservatives who look at liberals and be like, what's wrong with these people? Like, they, they're only concerned with like one thing in life. You know, there's all these other things to consider and like, so strangely, well, again, just read that book, but maybe the last one I'll, I'll read from this. Yeah. Um, the last one I'll read. So how did we arrive at a point where we're surrendering, surrendering to the idea that someone's right to go have a beer at a bar with their buddies unvaxxed and unmasked is more important than protecting the lives and health of the vulnerable. And well, in responses to that, to that, I'll just say that, like, <clears throat> that is the epitome of a straw man argument. Like, that's all that these people want. Oh, I just want to go have a, a beer with my buddy unvaxxed, unvaxxed, unvaxxed and unmasked. Well, I'll say that even if there are people like that, I can understand that perspective. Um, for, f even just for the reason that like um like McGilchrist gives in in the in the I, I can't remember if I actually brought up the example in the show we did on on the scientific method or just science institutional science that on those studies about alcohol and one of the points that he brings up was is that the pub is like an institution of 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 life of social life in the UK and that to eliminate the pub as as that institution actually will make people sick because the the best predictor of health is the ability to to socialize in a place like the pub and for a lot of people that's where they get their social socialization they're they're socializing with their peer group and without that their health you know it just correlational correlationally um their health you know will be worse without that social contact mm -hmm. so ju just as a you know um a just one point, taking that seriously, but when I think it's a, a totally unserious point to make. And to get into why, we'll get into this next article by Norman Doidge, author of The Brain That Changes Itself, and another one too. This was published in Tablet last year, called Needle Points. Why so many are hesitant to get the, the COVID vaccine and what we can do about it? I think this was a, a really good article. Jordan Peterson recommended that that's how I found it. Um, and he got Norman Deutsch to himself to to read the entire article, and and uh, Peterson published that on his YouTube page. So you can either read the article or watch or listen to Deutsch reading it uh, the whole way through. It's a long article; it's like thirty-eight pages, printed like book pages. And Deutsch himself, you know, just as a bit of background, he he's a psychoanalyst, a physician. Is he a psychiatrist too? Yes. Yeah, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and uh, and physician, or maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking of McGilchrist, but psychiatrist. And he himself is vaccinated, got vaccinated fairly early on. But uh, um, this is so. I mean, he's a, a total supporter of of vaccines. He would I from the I get the impression that he would consider himself pro vaccine if given the option of 
of you know self-categorizing that in that manner. But this article is an attempt, like it says, to understand why some people are are not getting vaccinated. And I would recommend it to to anyone who, um, well, to anyone who thinks they know the answer to that, <laughs> and anyone who's you know wondering who just doesn't understand. Because like a person, uh, a per- well, like a lot, like a lot of my Canadian friends, they they think they know the answer. It's because mm-hmm. it's because these people don't understand science. They don't understand how vaccines work, and they're just selfish and they don't care about other people. And that's as far as it goes. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Did you guys want me to get into it, or did you want to share some thoughts right off the bat? Uh, well, I would I would add that uh, I have a. Canadian friend who is American, um, who sounds just like, uh, Paige. And so, uh, there, there is this same set of, uh, ideas, defenses, um, stereotypes, uh, uh, whole swaths of missing information, um, on a whole range of, uh, issues regarding this this whole issue, um, that, that they're all missing. And the difficulty is in saying, but wait, you're, you're missing this vital piece of information and this as well. And, and maybe if you paid attention to, to these few facts here or what these doctors are saying over there, you may in fact begin to form a very different picture of of what it is that that's occurring and 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 restructure your position a little bit but um because and i think we'll get into a little bit of this uh the the um the moral taste buds of a of a certain um percentage of the population uh that um that the propaganda, uh, that the talking points that the media has worked on has limited to such a, an incredible degree the, uh, the scope of acceptable uh, conversation or information or, or thought. And so, and I think about this quite a lot, it's, it's like what, what would it take uh, to get through to an individual such as my friend or Paige or any number of other people who, who, who share these feelings and who are good people. Um, what, would it, what would it take in this world for them to gain this broader perspective on, on what it is that we're, we're faced with? Because it's so important and it's so immediate and it does, it, it does affect our interpersonal communication and our, the way that we relate to one another. And, and I have to notice it in myself, my own kind of, you know, tendency to want to, you know, scream <laughs> or, you know, at, at the at the unwillingness of 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 someone to uh, to be a little more open um, regarding what it is that that is actually occurring. Mm-hmm. So um, there were a lot of great points made in needlepoints. Uh, I love the double entendre, uh, you know, needle, needle points about the, the needles, the jabs, and, and also needle points kind of referring to, you know, knitting and, 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 and the work involved that, 
you know, that's traditional and, and rigorous and takes a bit of time and, and uh, some attention and focus and some planning. That, that's what needlepointing involves. So I, I appreciate the, the title of his piece. And um, I think he makes a, a many good points um, and leaves out a lot, too. Uh, that, but I understand why. He's, he's just presenting for his audience. And I think this is why Jordan Peterson uh, advocated for a, a reading of the entire article uh, by the author. He's just putting out the information that's already in the public sphere mm-hmm. and saying to folks, look at this picture. This is already established. This narrative and the way it's contradicted here and what we know about this is, is already public knowledge. Is it not a little bit unreasonable to understand the perspective of someone who's hesitant because of the, because of the billion-dollar lawsuits and fines that these same vaccine makers have been uh, fined by the FDA, which is by no means a, an adversarial organization? It, it's it's in the pockets of of big pharma, and yet they they still have to, you know create a showing of, of being or having some integrity by, by finding uh, AstraZeneca and Moderna and GlaxoSmithKline Beecham and all of these and Pfizer billions of dollars as recently as a few years ago. Why? Because of the negligence that, they, that they're guilty of for putting out medication that haven't been properly vetted and tested and, and, uh, by independent researchers, by the incredibly egregious injury that's been suffered by by thousands of individuals, and uh, and so you know that was is among many good points. One more other good point I thought I'd mention is this idea of for the greater good. Right, you're doing it for, for the, the greater, greater good. good. For the greater good. You know, I'm I'm surprised Paige didn't use that line in her article. Be, it's implicit. It's implicit, but but that would have given it that extra little oomph, I think. It's for the greater good. Don't you want to do something for the greater good? How do you argue with that? Well, you argue with that if someone is willing to listen by saying, okay, please define for me, what is the greater good? Who is the greater good? And how do you intend to measure what the greater good is. You gave that example about the pubs in the UK. Uh, you know, the, the, is it the Hippocratic or the, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. If you can't first prove that your treatment is not going to be harmful to someone or to, a, in this case, to tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, if you think about it on a global scale, if you can't first show that to the satisfaction of, of truly independent uh, thinkers and researchers. You know, how, how do you expect, uh, he asks in his article, how do you expect really to elicit that trust, to gain the trust of people who have, who have already- who have no had, reason to trust you. Yes, who already have experiences and knowledge of, of the way that, that uh, you know these regulatory agencies and big pharma and the health industry basically 
um, have abused their, their power in many cases in a systemic way. How do you, how do you propose to uh, have a conversation with someone if you keep calling them an idiot, if you keep calling them irresponsible, if you keep uh, taking away the freedom to make a living, or if you tell them that they can't decide for themselves whether or not they want to take what is essentially the fastest the fastest tracked uh, vaccine, which isn't, I don't think, properly even a vaccine. I, it, it's, it's supposed to ameliorate symptoms. Um, how do you expect people to get on board with this sort of thing? And so he poses these questions in a very reasonable fashion, very methodically. And, um, and yeah. I think that's the thrust of his article. It's like, look, these are all just basically what I'm saying here. Very reasonable. Mm -hmm. And as soon as, you, as soon as you diminish or denigrate or demonize the part of the population that's just trying to be reasonable, the vaccine hesitant, you've lost them right off the bat. So, yeah. Well, if you've got, um, it's, it's weird on a number of levels, right? Where just a few short years ago, you know, like five or 10 years ago, you would have had absolutely no problem at all with getting a Democrat to say that big pharma is corrupt mm -hmm. and for them to openly say that they don't trust them in some way, shape or form. There, there would have been no issue, no problem, no qualms. But now something's changed. Mm -hmm. And it's like all of that never happened. Mm -hmm. All of that just went out the window because something new has occurred and it's very scary and it's very overwhelming. And that has shut people down at the higher levels. So now they have more base responses to things, which is why you have such a low level or a low resolution view of what's going on is because those higher functions aren't mm -hmm. operating as they should be. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing is the way that Paige was writing about how she saw not only what she was doing, but also how the other camp was making their decisions. She portrayed herself and sees herself as being the more empathetic person. Mm -hmm. And yet one of the things about empathy is the ability to put oneself in another person's shoes. Mm -hmm. And so what that means or what that translates to into the, in the real world is being to, to under being able to understand where someone's coming from. Mm -hmm. So as an example, um, I was having a Facebook conversation with someone that I went to college with a number of years ago and this was related to uh, a topic that's kind of irrelevant. It's not, it doesn't matter what that point was. It's just that it came down to, you know, they had a different opinion than me. And because I was really wanting to know that I could put myself in their shoes, I laid out as best I could what I thought their position was. And I asked them, is this a fair summation or a close approximation 
of what it is that you actually think and and what you believe. Like I'm, this is me trying to, to, to walk a mile in your shoes. So I put it out there. They responded with yes. It's like, okay, I understand your position. When he tried to do the same thing to me, it's like, you totally missed the mark, like by 18, 18 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so even though they're saying that, or pro, they're proclaiming that they are the more empathetic people, when it comes down to it, you can't put yourself in the shoes of the other camp. Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, you are not being empathetic. Mm-hmm. You can't claim to be more empathetic because you're not being empathetic. Yeah. You're just, uh, it's like the, the lowest level of empathy, which is, shouldn't even be called empathy, you know, mm-hmm. maybe come up with another word for it. Like maybe sympathy where you feel, you feel what other people are feeling, but that could be selective. You're feeling what certain other people are feeling, which is mm-hmm. primarily what you're feeling. You're feeling what people like you are feeling mm-hmm. and then not seeing anything else, not, not feeling what other people, what other people who don't feel what you feel are feeling. So it's like this really, uh, myopic or, or like, uh, you know, telescope vision view of what empathy actually is. And, um, w- which is, <clears throat> it's based in that care, compassion, moral taste, bud, moral foundation. And which is, well, which brings me up, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, if we get around to it, I'll talk about para-appropriate reactions. I'll, I'll write that down as a reminder because I don't want to get into it yet. But on what you were saying, I wanted to read a quote from the end of this article where he's talking about a guy that he doesn't always agree with, but who, who he thinks is a good example. Um, Zubin Damania, who goes by the name Z-Dog MD, um, who is a pro-vaxxer who tries to get people, mm-hmm. you know, to, to get vaccinated essentially. So he, but he engages in conversations. So this is something that, that Z, Z dog, Z dog said, I actually, at one point in my career felt that shaming anti-vaxxers was a good idea because they were so dangerous to children. This was the pre pandemic stuff and it never works to convince anti-vaxxers. I would rarely get ever get emails from people saying, Hey, I was on the fence and you convinced me with your crazy rant about how stupid anti-vaxxers are. Then I started to wake up a bit. Why is it people feel the way that they do? And when you really dig into it, you go, I can empathize with that. Actually, we share the same goal, which is our kids should be healthy. So, and you really think this is going to help. So of course you are going to. In fact, I should love you for trying to do the right thing for your kids. So this is a guy who, who kind of came to that realization that, oh, I'm not actually being empathetic. I'm not actually trying to understand and I'm not, I'm not having any effect in the world. My approach isn't effective. My approach doesn't work. And that's the point, that's the point that I think, you know, ideally a lot of people would get is that what I'm doing isn't working. And on a, on a wider scale, the, the approach of the public health authorities and the politicians isn't working. It works better in other countries. And Deutsch gives the example of Sweden as being a country because I really recommend reading the, the article because he's got some, some threads that he kind of weaves in and out like Israel. Israel is a big, uh, an important thread to watch. But then he brings in Sweden at one point in comparison with Israel and points out how the similar populations uh, like numbers and um, Sweden didn't have lockdowns. Israel did. Um, Sweden didn't have mandates. You know, Israel does. And, and yet, oh, and, and Sweden had like a higher, 
they did have a higher, you know, death rate compared to Israel initially. At the, initially. And then something strange happened. Sweden's death rate got lower and lower and lower. And then, and Israel's got lower for a while. And then it went up and then it went up. And then everything went up in Israel mm -hmm. and Sweden was just kind of like chilling and being and like, oh, well, you know, things aren't so bad anymore. But he, point, he makes the, the point that I wanted to bring up in relation to Sweden is that he, he contrasts the, the, meta, the, the public health system in Sweden is that in Sweden, it's like a, what do they call it? Like a participatory or a, um, I forget the term, but it's yeah. a kinder approach. I yeah. Mean, well, it's, it's, a, it's a, an approach based on, well, it's in, it's individualistically, you know, targeted, um, it's not coercive. Mm -hmm. um, basically, people have a higher trust in the the public health system in Sweden. And so their vaccination rates are actually higher than the countries that had mandates. And this is a point he comes back to again and again in the article is that, well, he doesn't say it, but this is my kind of summary. It's like, the reason that you, all these countries are doing so poorly is because you're doing it wrong. Like all the, the, the mandate, like mandates only make things worse. When you, when you have to coerce people, it shows that you're doing something wrong. It shows that you have to re reevaluate your approach. And if you really want certain outcomes, you can't do it this way. It's not going to work. You're going to piss people off. You're going to make them resentful. You're going to make them even more distrustful of you. And you're not going to get what you want, which means like the, with the, the example of the abusive parent, you're just going to have to keep beating your kid expecting them to change and it only makes things worse you're going to get more people that that are hesitant to listen to what you're saying to think that you're just lying all the time as opposed to his approach is that you should just be more honest more transparent tell people what you don't know tell them what the what the known risks are and what the unknown risks are like he gives the example of the oh, i think it was for the booster shots um let me see if i can find it with uh with pregnant women and well, basically the, like the study that they did, the, the trial that they did for one of the vaccines was that, uh, they said, okay, well, well, the, the public health statement was that, was that it's, it's, it's fine. It's, uh, you know, the studies were done and, and health and, you know, w women in their third trimester, trimester, you know, had, um, successful pregnancies, like there weren't problems. The, the study itself was like three months long. It, it, it followed people for three months only in the third trimester. So it didn't actually, it couldn't say anything about a full-term pregnancy, couldn't say anything about the first two trimesters, and it couldn't say anything about um, the children or the, you know, the infants after they were born. All it was is that, you know, there were no deaths in the third trimester because we only studied for, for three weeks. And then, um, but that's the, so the, the like the pub public health statements would just totally ignore all that other stuff and just say, oh, it's fine for pregnant people pregnant people, <laughs> pregnant women, women are right? people too. Yeah, are, so. yeah. <laughs> and, but there are a number of examples like that to the point where he, he, he says that, okay, so uh, another similar example was that the, the, the initial criteria for accepting the, the vaccine for like emergency use was that it had to be at least 50% effective. <laughs> and so when they first did their like two month study, it was 95% effective for both like, you know, Moderna and, and Pfizer were both 95% effective. Well, there was a question of, of what were the actual um, like outcomes that they were looking at, which weren't very weren't very well designed um, in, the, in the first place. But then it then after 
you know, after months of the, the mass vaccination campaigns, they found out that the, the, that the efficacy of the vaccine, the, the effectiveness in, in real world situation actually waned over a period of months. It got mm-hmm. lower and lower and lower. There was a funny video on Twitter about it where it shows that, you know, it's got the, well, it's got some funny music and then it, it shows all the headlines hundred percent effective, hundred percent effective, 95, 95. And as the music goes on, the number keeps getting lower. 85, 84, 83, 80, 79, 77, 76, until it's getting like 50, 45, you know? And so the, 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 the efficacy at a certain point gets to be below 50%. So by the time it got below 50%, which was below their target for what the vaccine had to be in order to be approved, not only were they not acknowledging this publicly and saying, you know, sorry, it's, you know, we can say that it provides protection from serious, from severe illness and death. Um, and, but, but, but the, it doesn't, uh, you know, at this point we can't say that it prevents transmission and the F and the F- efficacy does drop below 50%, which was below what we, you know, our threshold for approving it in the first place. Mm-hmm. No, now we're mandating that you get it. So he pointed out like that a lot of this is just totally, totally like crap public relations and, and dealing in public communication with, or just communicating with the public about what's really going on, Be, not being honest, not being transparent. Right. And, and then making, and that in effect, making things worse. So the, so by the time that the vaccines are shown to be to, to for their effectiveness to wane significantly over time, it's not, they say, okay, well, we're going to back up a bit. You know, we can let people, we can say, okay, it's not as effective as we thought. So, so maybe, you know, we'll give people the option, you know, you can get it, but just be aware that it'll wane. Um, instead of giving people the option and, and being honest about the, 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 like being honest about it, not being as great as they first said it was, they say, no, you've got to get it. Everyone has to get it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the idea of, okay, mandating, everyone has to get it. This is a one size fits all approach, mm-hmm. which Deutsch says is again, completely like ass backwards. It doesn't work. It's the totally wrong approach. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to get back and then I want to address that one point. Um, so with pregnant women in particular, uh, most pregnant women who want to be good mothers, who want to have healthy children are also not just thinking about, you know, will, will my, will my child possibly, will I not be able to conceive this child because of a vaccine. Um, but what might be the, uh, the health effects mm-hmm. that my the baby long-term. will have long-term? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, two months or three weeks or whatever the, the, yeah, three months, the, yeah. the, the study uh, suggested, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. And the, the sample sizes of most of the, the tests that these, uh, that these companies have have been uh, looking at in order to prove efficacy are they're a joke mm-hmm. they're paid for by uh by the companies written by the companies written by the companies marketed by the companies presented by lobbyists to politicians in Washington to be doled out in mass as opposed to the way that people traditionally get treated which is to go to a doctor to get properly diagnosed uh, for a specific condition, uh, maybe even possibly get a a second opinion. And then, and only then usually, is something prescribed and a treatment plan uh, given for something that is hopefully 
been uh, tested and and they're you know with with a, a great deal of experience and, and medication in in its efficacy efficacy. Um, there was one thing that I didn't see, uh, and granted, I didn't I didn't get all the way through. I uh, got maybe three quarters. Um, to know exactly if he discusses this particular aspect of of the whole narrative and situation. And that is that one of the other things that is a prerequisite for an emergency use authorization is that there are no other known treatments. Yeah, he didn't get into that. And that was one thing that kind of bugged me Mm -hmm. about about it, because that's kind of a big thing, too. In terms of the the reason why people are hesitant, Mm -hmm. that is also a big reason why people are hesitant about getting these shots uh, because there were numerous doctors who, okay, it's anecdotal mm-hmm. in the sense that there were no like, you know, specific double blind trial studies or whatever, but these were just frontline doctors who in their practice came across very similar protocols, mm-hmm. you know, totally independent doctors who each came up with very similar protocols that seemed to work and be very effective in reducing hospitalizations and death. Mm-hmm. And those were never discussed openly. Mm-hmm. And that's a big issue because if there were any alternatives, then the emergency use authorization would yeah. not have been able to go through. It would not have been able to be pushed forward. And that again is one of the reasons why the the hesitant Mm-hmm. are hesitant Be- and distrust uh, yeah it they're not trusting what people are saying because they see these are things that actual doctors in their actual practice are these are the results that they're getting they're going on media you know local news stations and saying i have a treatment i've been working with hundreds of patients these are my results i've sent it here and there and they're uh frequently stonewalled you know, things look good and they, they send it out and they're hopeful. And then all of a sudden they just, nothing goes anywhere. Yeah. They, they just get stonewalled and, and people see this and they're like, well, why is that? It, if this is a deadly thing and we need a treatment now, that's what they're telling us. They're telling us this is super deadly. Okay. We'll take that on board. So we need a treatment now. Okay. These <laughs> doctors are saying we have something that works. And you're telling me we can't even talk about it. We need something now, but it needs to be our proprietary, uh, yes. you know, medicine that, uh, that, that you have to buy. And, that, and that's the only one you can use. Mm-hmm. So this, this is again, like from the, from the, pers- from the outside looking in what it looks like, and this is kind of what Deutsch's main point is, what it looks like is that there, there's a, a bunch of corrupt people just playing around and making stuff up in order to make money. It looks like this is, and he says, even if that's not true, um, even if, and we don't know, you know, even if it may not be true, like literally true in a kind of cartoon book way, it's a reasonable assumption to make given all of this history, because he gives all that history about, he says that the three most distrusted institutions in the United States, for instance, are like public health, the federal government, and big pharma and big pharma and then the one right below it 
or, or right above it or above those three is like marketing and like, you know, PR. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And those are, those are the four industries that were central, like the only ones that were central to this entire um, pandemic management system mm-hmm. with, and, and the vaccine rollout, all of the most distrusted institutions in the United States. And those were the only ones that have like, had a net negative um, public perception. All the others at least had a, a, a net positive, you know, even if they weren't very trustworthy. Those were the only ones with a net negative public perception. And they were all the most corrupt and the least trustworthy. And then he gives the examples throughout, throughout the 20th century of why. And it's because, and he, and he gives like some of the some of the major expose books that that had come out about just the sheer amount of corruption in big pharma and with the government Mm -hmm. talks about the revolving door, how people who work on the FDA approving drugs, then after their term on the FDA, they go to work for the very companies that they were approving drugs for. It's like, maybe this is a conflict of interest and people see this and people understand this, and that's why they are the most distrusted institutions in the in the United States, is because they can see the gross corruption that goes on. And the and so, what kind of things are they doing? Well, these the big pharma, for instance, they uh, and with the FDA. Okay, we'll start with the FDA. The FDA, in many cases, approves drugs without um, adequate like uh, um, studies showing that, that showing their effectiveness. He gives one example of one that was a, that was accepted even though all the FDA approvers reviewers said no we're not going to do this but um what's her name the one of the ladies at the FDA said okay no no we're actually we're going to approve it and the reason was because it there was uh, the, the in the trial it showed that one biomarker you know got better nothing about and just because a biomarker gets better, that doesn't show that it's actually effective. It just shows that the biomarker got better. It doesn't show that anyone was actually um, helped by it in a, in a real way. And, um, and the drug companies themselves, they, well, they, they pay the FDA. So Deutsch points out that the you know, hundreds of millions of dollars get paid by the drug companies to the FDA, essentially their salaries. So the FDA pretty much works for Big Pharma. Big Pharma, they write their own reports, their own studies. They have a, a long history of ghostwriting articles, like in medical journals, and or paying, um, paying doctors, paying third-party researchers to to put their name on the articles that they've written in order to to seed the the the, the community, the medical community, and the public with positive PR that they wrote that they distance themselves from because when you because it is just PR there are conflicts of interest even the the i believe it was Moderna and the, the Pfizer studies the, the the people that were that did the trials had ties to and and stocks you know owned stocks in these in these companies clear conflicts of interest and it's not just conflicts of interest because you can have a con- conflict of interest and still good still do good science it's but there's there's always the chance that you're not and that you're not even aware that you're not because you're incentivized to to cover for your employer or who you stand to benefit from also just gross fraud and this can be um ignoring negative effects designing studies so that you don't even touch negative adverse effects because if we find adverse effects then we might have to report them and then we might not get approved and then we might not make money so he's pointing out that 
the people who, who are vaccine hesitant actually have very good reasons for being vaccine hesitant. Mm -hmm. It may be the case that in, in, in certain ways they, um, how, how, how should I put this? It may be the case that they're wrong. You know, they might, they might, they might have an unhealthy distrust. Like maybe it will turn out that, for example, in, you know, some trial, it was actually a good, uh, a good experiment and, and shows what it says it shows, you know, maybe you don't have any particular, uh, maybe your trust was misplaced or your distrust was misplaced. Mm -hmm. Um, that could be the case, but without the transparency, without the ability to look at this, at the, at the data, because these companies, all, all of the vaccine producers, whether, um, you know, in the U S the UK, Russia, they won't give all their data. They say, Oh no, you know, we're still, we're still running our trials. We can't give the data. So you're still running the trials and can't give the data, even though, you know, the vaccines have been, um, hundreds of millions of people have taken them. Okay. That makes sense. Um, there are very good reasons. There are very like rational, reasonable reasons. Reasonable is the best word. There, there are reasonable reasons for distrusting people and for being for these these institutions, these companies, and for being hesitant. That's the that's the main point he's making is that it's not yeah. just crazy people. Yeah. It's not just paranoid people. And he points out that among the there's a you know a study that he quotes about the vaccine hesitant and the the most vaccine hesitant people were all PhDs. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about the the frontline medical workers, how like fifty four percent of like of frontline nurses or something in I don't know if it was just in New York, just in New York, or if it was in the states, don't want to get the vaccine. It's like okay, so think about that. It's not just that these that that people who like the vaccine hesitant don't know about the science; that they're just ignorant of the way vaccines work. It's like I'm pretty sure nurses know the way vaccines work. Mm-hmm. They. And, and they also see the effects of vaccines yeah. firsthand. Yeah, they, they see the, the adverse effects that do happen. Okay, well, that reminds me of two points. Um, I got to write one down so I don't forget it. Um, uh, oh, uh, oh, <laughs> so much to say. But on, on that, they are also the ones that have been exposed to the virus. They were exposed to the virus for one, one and a half years when the vaccine wasn't available. The heroes. The heroes. And so, so this leads into the a point that I wanted to make about this one size fits all approach about about the vax mandate, is it it doesn't make any sense. It um it doesn't make any sense to force everyone to be vaccinated when a significant percentage of the population is already immune. That in itself, that is also a reason why where people scratch their head and be like, well, maybe they maybe these people are full of shit. You know, it's it's a re- a reasonable response because the policy makes no sense. As Deutsch points out, the point of artificial immunization is to recreate natural immunity, mm-hmm. because when because natural immunity is is what you're what you're trying to recreate with a vaccine. The, and if if a person, um, well, without getting into all the Harrison, details. you're making too many points. I want to comment on a few of them <laughs> because well, they're all they're all so yeah. interesting and compelling. Um, for one thing, uh, Israel, the, mm-hmm. the 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 most vaxxed country in the world, apparently, where uh, where the IDF uh, their, their military drags out their soldiers at two a.m. in the morning and tells them that they're going to get vaxxed right then and there. Um, that level of coercion, in some cases. Uh, has also come out with one of the most compelling studies suggesting that natural immunity is 
as if not more effective, more than, effective. than getting vaccinated. So um, interesting point there. I did want to get back to your uh, that anecdote about the FDA um, and that uh, leader of the FDA overriding the uh, the assessment of three other panelists who said that, and I think it was an Alzheimer's medication, that it wasn't going to help people, that the, that the one marker that did show positive uh, effects wasn't enough to show that, that, in fact, it was worthy of approving. And when she overrode them, what did they do? They quit. They walked off. They left the FDA. Um, so we do have individuals with integrity in the medical establishment who are, in many cases, being overpowered um, politicized, uh, marginalized. Um, th they're not given any voice in the conversation. Uh, the very fact that you have such a large number of frontline health physicians in the U.S. Uh, who are coming out en masse, uh, in groups, in unions, in protests, and saying, no, uh, you can't mandate us to get vaccinated, um, or you can, but we're not having it. The fact that you you have such a large number of of individuals who instinctively and with a knowledge base uh, behind it resisting this sort of thing and it not being part of the national conversation that it not being something that is generally uh, understood or acknowledged and the reasons why tells you a lot about how. The media managers are omitting huge um, parts of this story from the awareness of individuals who um, who are just getting the talking points drilled into them day after day after day, and it 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 makes it all the more difficult because of this programming that that so many have received and have succumbed to. Uh, for any kind of um, any kind of opening or 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 uh, I want to say rehabilitation, um, because uh, th that's what happens. There's a it, there's a it, it, um, it's it's like a malignant set of beliefs and and attitudes about the the, the vaccine hesitant that are. Um, that these that this other group that we've been dis discussing are uh, they're completely against them and they don't have there's no way for them there's no way out um, what's worse one more point along those lines is that you have individuals now including leaders of government who are coming out and saying well you know the vaccine hesitant the anti-vaxxers are so irresponsible and so um, uh, white supremacist and, and what have you that, well, it may come a time where they have to be separated from everybody or, you know, or even worse, you get some statements that, that suggest that, that there's, that the vaccine hesitant are so evil uh, that they might as well die, which is, it, it's so many degrees distant from any 
reasonable understanding of any uh, empathy, as you said earlier, uh, Adam, of any humanity. Uh, and that's where all of these people's beliefs are being corralled in order to justify what? What is the next step here? Why are, why are people being programmed to, to hate so vociferously? against anti-vaxxers it's it's a question in my mind and i think i think it it's scary for a, i don't know if it would be a potential answer to that question as to you know why all the hate um but to tie it in with something that you had said earlier about good people being within the medical medical community there was the the woman who uh i guess you'd say found the omicron variant or discovered, I don't know what the right word for that would be, but, you know, she was the one who first isolated it or whatever. It came whatever. to her in a revelation. It came to her in, in a dream or, you know, whatever. Uh, but she, so she found it, realized, okay, this is a much milder form than the the Delta and the Alpha and whatever the other ones were, you know, the, the first ones. Uh, she, you know, noticed that everybody's symptoms were milder. There were, you know, fewer hospitalizations and so on. And she was pressured to say that, to not put that out there. The, the fact that it was a milder form, she was pressured to say nothing about that. So again, talking about manipulations and trust, she's come out and said, I was told not to say this, even though it's the truth and people should know it. Mm -hmm. That's, that tells you something about what's really going on. And this is something that uh, other people have talked about, um, which is that one of the things about government is that it always looks to get more power to itself. It always looks to accrue more power. That's the, man the managerial class. They always look to, to centralize and accrue more power unto itself, always. So it's like how, I, okay, so, so that's one aspect of, of government and talking about an example of how that came into play. One thing, again, talking about an example as to why people distrust government and media and so on that uh, he doesn't talk about in Needlepoints, it was Saddam Hussein and the weapons of mass destruction. The invasion of Iraq was based on lies. Sure. And we know this. We like that is hard fact now. That's not conspiracy fringe. That is like open and acknowledged truth that that was all a lie. And yet we went and destroyed an entire country because of it. Mm -hmm. And so much of what has come down as a result of that in terms of the Department of Homeland Security yeah. and so many other restrictions on your uh, civil liberties your ability to travel how you how you would so desire or however you so desire those sorts of restrictions they're still in place 20 years later this is the exact point some of the vaccine hesitant are making that regardless of whether or not this is a deadly pandemic regardless what they're trying to do in terms of imposing restrictions on what people are able to do who they're able to be with, for how long, when, all of those sorts of details, those are the exact same things that we saw restricted earlier. Those were based on lies then. 
So why am I supposed to trust you now when I have even more evidence of your lying deceitfulness? It's the Decepticon variant. (laughs) The Hobo 19 virus. (laughs) No, yeah, absolutely. On that, we need to talk about the the BIS, Mm -hmm. the the behavioral immune system. The the Bank of International Settlements. (laughs) (laughs) First, first, I want to just, I want to circle back to uh, natural immunity first make two points one not unnatural immunity so this was on the in the myocarditis section of Deutsch's article um so an israeli study found that in boys aged 12 to 15 myocarditis occurred in only 162 cases out of a million this was in relation to the pfizer vaccine but now this is the important part but this rate was four to six times higher than their chances of being hospitalized for a severe case of COVID. So this is one, another one of the, the, just the supreme idiocies of a, of a one size fits all mandate vaccine mandate is that it doesn't take into account that individualized medicine, which is like the ideal of, of medicine is that you, that you adapt your approach based on the individual. So he says this in different contexts um, in, in, at various points throughout the article is that what, what we really needed and what we still really need is an, a look at, um, well, taking into account that the main issue people have, like when asked in polls about why they're hesitant, it's the, the potential for long-term side effects, long-term adverse effects of a vaccine, which are by, by virtue of the the time in which the vaccines were developed and implemented are impossible to know. So they're basically worried about the unknown. Well, something bad could happen. And they're right. Something bad could happen. Doesn't necessarily mean it will, or to any great degree. It could be that it does happen and that, you know, it's a one in a million, you know, thing, or it could be a lot worse than that. But, but it could, but even that, if it's a lot worse, maybe, maybe COVID in itself is, is worse than that. The point, the point is that we just don't know. And that it's, and that they have a good reason for for questioning it because it is unknown. And then doctors and public health authorities will say, oh, don't worry about it. Well, you're just telling me to d- not to worry about it, but it's clear that you don't know, you don't have the, you don't have a basis for reassuring me because you can't possibly know. No one can. So with that in mind, the a proper approach or a more healthy approach would be to look at individuals and populations. You look at the groups who are most at risk, for instance, of getting COVID, target those populations, you know, promote vaccination saying, if you're, if you have this many, you know, if you have these, um, pre-existing conditions, if you're at this age, if you're obese, if you have low vitamin D levels, you are more at risk. And you can even give the percentages, you know, 75% of severe cases of COVID in the, in the U S um, I think I read this today. It's, it was either, um, um, were either overweight or had like low, low vitamin D or something, one of the two. And if you laid that out, then the, then that would give the people who, 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 um, are, are at risk to say, okay, I think that for me personally, it makes more sense to get the vaccine. Then you can look at a perf- perfectly healthy 15 year old with no pre existing con- conditions whose chances are way, way lower than that, who, who will say, you know what? I'm young, I'm healthy. The chances are really slim that I'm going to get sick. I'm going to decide not to because actually the chances that I'll get myocarditis are actually higher than mm-hmm. me having any significant, you know, ad- adverse effect from getting COVID. Why would, why would 12 to 15 year old boys? Why should they 
get a vaccine when the risks of getting myocarditis are higher than having a severe case of COVID in their, in like in their own minds. When you're, when you're looking at that, at those stats, you know, you're saying, oh, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to go with the thing that has a higher chance of harming me in some way. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. And it's the same thing with natural immunity. As Deutsch points out, he, he quotes the studies that show that natural immunity is stronger than the vaccine. Vaccines are uh, an imitation of natural immunity. Some of them are better than others. Like he gives gives the history of vaccines and some really good vaccines that actually provide like 10 years plus of full natural or full uh, artificial immunity mm -hmm. you know, from a vaccine. Like he gives like, like smallpox and polio or something like that. But when you've got, when you've got people who have natural immunity and he points out that like, pr it's probably like 50% of the people who are unvaccinated have natural immunity. They don't need a virus. They are more protected and less likely to transmit the virus than a vaccinated person to like grandma or your immunocompromised nephew. So your immunocompromised nephew is healthier hanging out with 50% of the unvaxxed population than the entire vaccinated population. Well, not in the entire, but a significant portion of the, the, the most at risk, you know, part of the vaccinated population. So again, it just, it doesn't make sense. And when things don't make sense, people pick up on that mm -hmm. and they become less trustful of you. And they, they, they begin to think, well, maybe there's something else going on here. You know, maybe these people, maybe there is some grand conspiracy, you know, it's, it's perfect fodder for the, the craziest conspiracy theories. And you're going to get more people believing the craziest conspiracy theories. And I've, I've heard some of them, you know, and I've heard like the, the ones in Russia are the best because the, like the anti-vaxxers in Russia are the craziest out of, out of the ones that I've seen. Um, but you, you get that. You get that when the reason when the, the the major institutions behind these policies give no reason to trust you. But if you were to just be honest about all of this stuff, open and transparent about it, paradoxically, you would actually get more people trust you and vaccination rates would actually be higher. You know, think about that. But again, you're never going to get in a large population, you're never going to get a hundred percent compliance with something like this. Because there will always be people who will just say no just because they want to say no. And then there will be more people who want to who say no because they've actually still got good reasons for saying no. You're never going to get to 100%. And this goes back to like a show we did like a, I don't know, a year or two ago on totalitarianism and how I, I made the argument that the one of the main ways of instituting and of creating and maintaining a totalitarian government system is to make central to your government, your way of rule, the implementation of an impossible policy. This was the case of Mao and Stalin, um, like with Mao with his industrial and agricultural um, ideas, something that is impossible from the beginning, but you make it your central policy because the, the goal will never never be reached, and therefore you can always push people harder to reach to, to reach that goal. It's just a bit further down the road. We just have to work a bit harder, and people will keep working, keep working. Eventually it'll probably well, eventually it does fall apart because it never ends up working, but by then you've already, you've entrenched your, you've entrenched your power so strongly that chances are it doesn't matter because you've already got all the power you need. That's why the Soviet Union lasted for 70 years. And that's why the, you know, the communist party is still in, in power in China is because they cemented that institution of power 
Um, so that, that on, I think I'm done with natural immunity because, uh, again, just one of those things that it doesn't make, the, the policy doesn't make sense when looked, when you look at actual reality. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it does make a certain kind of sense. And Deutsch points it out. Is it, I think it was Fauci who said, or one of the, one of the big, you know, public health people who acknowledged that, yeah, um, natural immunity. Okay, sure. Um, but it's a big bureaucratic problem, right? Because, mm -hmm. oh, now, how, now we have to figure out who's naturally immune. It's a lot easier just to make sure everyone gets vaccinated, even if they don't need it. You know, that way we can be, be sure. But the background to all of this is the way that the was a very good impersonation of a, of a technocrat, by the way, Harrison. <laughs> yeah, it's my future, my future calling. No, the, the, but, yeah. but that gets to the beginning of the article. Maybe this will be our last point, the beginning of the article where he talks about the, the BIS, mm -hmm. the behavioral immune system. This is kind of the ex the psychological explanation for everything that we've been talking about. And that is this behavioral immune system. I'll read a bit. <clears throat> it's a circuit that is triggered when we sense that we may be near a potential carrier of disease, causing disgust, fear, and avoidance. It is involuntary and not easy to shut off once it's been turned on. So this, the BIS, he says, makes us hypersensitive to hygiene and hints of disease in other people, even signs that they are from another tribe. And he gives a background to this. There's a, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's called like parasite, parasite theory or something, but it's this, it's a theory that a lot of like, uh, um, well, that, that this phenomenon has a lot to do with like the creation of culture and, and like over history. There's a, Jordan Peterson interviewed the guy that, that like create that, that wrote about it and, and kind of introduced this theory. I don't remember all the details, but it's a, but it's really interesting, but this is kind of what he's getting at here is that, um, because other tribes are kind of, um, have their own natural immunity to, to certain diseases that other tribes, the other tribes don't. And so, um, it's almost like this inbuilt immune system between tribes. It's like, well, if we interact with that tribe, we're going to get their disease and a lot of us are going to die. So it's kind of like a, um, um, like a biological explanation for a certain type of like, um, xenophobia, uh, because of those strangers, we might get sick and die if we interact with those strangers. Um, but it's kind of like up close and personal it, because, uh, well, in a situation, in situations with or without actual diseases, because, um, the, the, the disease might be imaginary. It's just a, it is a kind of, um, a very, conservative and um like risk aversive life strategy that that person potentially diseased so i'm going to stay away from them in order to protect myself mm -hmm. so he says it can it the bis can also trigger rage but rage is complex because it is normally expressed by getting close to the subject and attacking it but with contagion one fears getting too close so generally the anger is expressed by isolating the plague bearer so this can lead to um, getting triggered by, he says, inanimate things like bodily fluids, body fluids of some kinds, surfaces others may have touched, or even more abstract ideas like going to the grocery store. There is one exception. The BIS doesn't get or stay activated in people who don't feel vulnerable, perhaps because they have good PPE or because their youth gives them strong innate immunity or because they know they're already immune, 
or because they're seriously mid misled or delusional or delusional about the reality of the disease. And so you see examples of all of these, like you see people who are delusional about COVID who think it doesn't exist, that it's all a government conspiracy, that, you know, that everything's a government plot, that, not, that nothing about it is true. And, um, and, and even more crazy conspiracies than that. But then you get the people who like, th this is a, lot, a large percentage of the vaccine hesitant. They just, they, they're not worried about it because they know they're immune because they know they're healthy. And of course there might be a tiny, tiny chance that some of those people will get sick, but it's, it is tiny. Like I think I looked at, I tried to guess the populate. I tried to find the statistics for over the past two years, the number of people who have actually had a, se a severe case of COVID or something and, or who have like officially gotten a, a case an acknowledged case of COVID. And it was like 6% or something like that of like the global population. Um, well, I can't remember if I, I've got my stats right, but the, the but the percentage of the of the total population, mm -hmm. world population, who have had a severe case of COVID and died, is is like is minuscule. So when you when you when you look at the actual absolute risks, like your absolute risk, I have a this point this point this percent chance of of getting this or this happening, like you often see with like um, you know getting struck by lightning or getting in a car accident. It's a, it's usually a tiny percentage. If you express it in an absolute percentage point, it's not very big. It's tiny. It's tiny. Yeah, not very big. Yeah, yeah it's an understatement. It, it, so, so people who aren't, who don't feel vulnerable, the BIS doesn't apply to them. Like the, it's not activated in them. Yeah. But the people who are scared, it is activated in them, and that causes them to see all these other people as potential plague bearers that need to be isolated from society. Right. Well, there, there is a flip side to that, which I found very interesting and, and speaks to uh, the righteous mind and Jonathan Haidt's research. And that is that the behavioral immune system, the BIS also exists for, for that set of the population who doesn't, who, whose disgust uh, trait um, manifests in not wanting this, uh, right. this attenuated virus injected into them. So, so that's their uh, reaction to the whole thing. What you mean? You're gonna you're gonna inject me with something that's that's already uh, a virus that maybe contains some other stuff in it that's gonna be in my body that you're gonna put in uh, that isn't part of me already uh, in my veins. You know <laughs> that that that's their perspective. My precious bodily fluids. <laughs> yes, you're gonna don't don't be messing with my precious bodily fluids. Um, right, so the BIS is activated in a whole lot of people on both sides. On both sides, exactly. Both, a very in, interesting observation. But there are very fine uh -huh. people on both sides too. The very fine people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I wanted to read uh, a passage towards the end of uh, his article, which speaks to this idea a little bit. What he says is, many people's mental set for the pandemic was formed early on when the BIS was on fire, and they were schooled by a master narrative that promised there would only be one type of person who would not pose danger, the vaccinated person. Stuck in that mindset when confronted by unvaccinated people, about half of whom are immune, they respond with BIS-generated fear, hostility, and loathing. Some take it further and seem almost addicted to being scared or remain caught in a kind of post-traumatic lockdown nostalgia, demanding that all the previous protections go on indefinitely, never factoring the costs and triggering ever more distrust. 
their minds are hijacked by a primal, archaic, cognitively rigid brain circuit and will not rest until every last person is vaccinated, which is, I think, a very good description of what we're seeing and reminds me of what you were mentioning earlier, Adam, in regards to the TSA and everything that's been done in the name of fear of terrorism since 2001 with the Patriot Act. And in that particular instance, if y'all remember, we had Martha Stout's research pointing to the amygdala hijack, which was also a uh, behavioral, um, primal, archaic hooking in to the, the primal fear of individuals who uh, were prepared to give up a lot of their liberties in the name of safety. Uh, I think there's, there's quite a bit of overlap between that mm -hmm. and, and what we're seeing right here. Um, so spread knowledge, not fear. That's what I say. The last, the last, well, one of the things that I said I'd get to was para-appropriate responses. I think we'll, I'll save most of that discussion for another show another time. But the last point I'll make is on that, on that subject, para-appropriate response is just simply a natural, like innate emotional instinctive response that is adaptive in the world. Like it makes sense. It works in ordinary situations, ordinary social situations, but in other situations, atypical situations, it becomes unadaptive. It, it, it is, it, it becomes maladaptive. maladaptive. That doesn't work. And this can apply to pretty much any facet of, of, well, it's a term from Lobachevsky in political ponderology, but this can apply to pretty much any type of um, emotion or response that humans have that's built into their, into their nature. And getting back to, to Paige's article, this like care and compassion is just one of those. Care and compassion works, but there are certain situations in which it doesn't work or it can be exploited. And the situations, the most typical situations where normal human reactions don't work is when they, um, as like Lobachevsky puts it, when, when they approach the realm of psychopathology. So for example, when you're dealing with a psychopath, all of your ordinary reactions that work in normal life don't work with a psychopath. Because in, an, in a normal interaction, you can have a certain base level of trust with someone, for instance. Um, they can say one thing, you trust that they're telling the truth. You'll say one thing, you're telling the truth, and you can get along and, let's say, engage in a business transaction or something more serious. You can't take that for granted when you're dealing with a psychopath. They exploit the fact that you, that humans, normal humans, behave and react in certain ways for their own self-benefit, which means lying and exploiting the positive qualities of people. So the way that psychopathic governments get power and keep it is by exploiting the positive, not well, the positive and the negative aspects of human nature. So what better way than to exploit the BIS, the behavioral immune system, or the, you know, amygdala, amygdala hijack, like, like Stout was talking about, because to normal people, they're just being normal. You know, I'm just doing the, the normal thing, the, the right thing. Do the right thing. I'm doing the right thing like humans have always done and always should do and always will do. Um, good people will always behave like this. Well, maybe in a normal situation, but in an abnormal situation, you have to take into account that you're being played and that there are other people who even 
if you're doing the total right thing, will use you, use what you're doing, use your better nature against you to your own detriment as well as to the detriment of other people. So when you, out of care and compassion, for instance, give give your government too much power and, and too much of a certain kind of power, you're tying your own noose because that... That, like there is another person on the other, uh, like behind the halls of power or pulling the strings behind the halls of power. Who's just laughing at you because you're being so gullible and naive that you think this is all about care and compassion. Well, it's not, you can, it's for a psychopath. It is so easy to manipulate. Like this is what Ted Bundy did. Ted Bundy would prepare, would pretend to be injured. He'd have a fake cast and he'd get like kind, good natured women to, to come and help him. And then he'd kidnap them, rape them and kill them. And the, like it was, but it's the right thing to do to help someone who seems like they're, they're suffering, right? Who's, who, who just needs a hand crossing the street. Well, yeah, normally, but not in all situations. So, and this is why people should be, how, how do I put this? Like there's a, I do think that trust is a good thing and that trusting societies, there are, there are many good things to be said about trusting people and trusting societies, but, and, and, it, and distrust can go too far. Like you can be too paranoid. You, well, you can actually become paranoid, um, to an unhealthy degree when you lose, um, like a basic level of normal human trust for other people. And that there can be numerous reasons for that, whether it's brain damage or just, a, um, like a bad childhood, um, there can be reasons for why people dis have it like that, that unhealthy level of distrust for other people. But when it comes to the government, there should always be a healthy level of distrust. Like you should never let your trusting nature give a pass to people who have the, who essentially have the power of life or death over you, because that is essentially what all governments have, whether they use it or not is a, is a often a function of the, just the, the degree of health of a society, but every government does have power of life and death over you. They have the, the monopoly on violence. And when you forget that and just think you can go about your life, um, just doing the right thing and caring for other people, totally, you know, ignorant of, of what, uh, of the, like the, the devious intentions of a certain subset of the population, then you're putting yourself and other people in danger. You're putting your own ability to do that in danger because if the history of totalitarianism in the 20th century is, you know, taught us anything, if you are, if you believe that about yourself and what you're doing while giving the, like giving the government a free pass to accrue more and more power to itself, you might be the first person on the execution block. You might be the first person, you know, by the firing squad and it might not be that literal in, or it might be, you know, again, that's an unknown. It, it could be, you know, mass executions could be, could make a, a comeback who knows, or it could just be, um, you know, something lighter in nature, like, uh, you know, like social credit isolation or something. Um, who knows, but to actually be responsible, with the, the future in mind and the health of the entire body politic, it isn't healthy to just take the approach like someone like Paige and just, and just see things in such, in this it's narrow view where it's all about just helping your grandmother or your, or your nephew. Well, you can, you can keep that. You can, um, 
you can factor that into your decisions, absolutely, but you need to widen your horizons a bit and see that there's more at play going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's all I have to say about that. Well, I bet in, it's like one of those, I think that's a good approach to take generally as a, as a general rule of thumb is just to, you know, for normal for normal interactions with people, you just kind of assume trust. You, you assume that they're probably, you know, crappy people because most people are crap. So you just kind of take that as a given. But, you know, have a certain level of trust within, you know, per interpersonal relationships. But when it comes to your relationship to your government, you should always have at least some level of distrust because that's just the nature of the people who seek power is to abuse it in order to use it for their own means and ends. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's also just unrealistic. Like it's impossible. Um, any government or any leader at any level, there's no way that they can please everyone. Mm -hmm. There will be people that they have to, in, a, in essence, be against because you can't please everyone. You can't make a policy that is good for everyone. So chances are you are going to be on the receiving end of that at some point on every level. So you have to, you have to have a, a bit of, um, <clears throat> well, distrust and, and like not necessarily combativeness, but, um, there needs to be attention because, because, um, like politicians do need to be held to account because either they'll do nothing, do nothing and everyone suffers or they'll, they'll do something and everything suffers, or there's just going to be this, 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 um, um, like this chaos of, well, some people are going to get the short end of the stick and some people aren't. And you, you always need to be aware that it's, it's never simple. Like you can, you can never just take a simple approach and just, uh, just ignore it. You know, well, you can ignore it, but. And that's, mm -hmm. So one other thing that I was going to, to mention was getting back to the amygdala hijack and the uh, behavioral immune systems. There's, it's something that's very important, though understated, is just a personal awareness of oneself, one's ability to think, one's emotions, like all of those uh, individual systems, like these are things to pay attention to because when you're aware that something's going on, you can deal with it. And so in an instance where, you know, all of a sudden you're really scared about something and, you know, you're feeling overwhelmed and this, that, and the other, then you can realize that you're in this state and then you can examine it and then you can figure out, well, what's going on? And then, you know, by, by, the, by the process of sorting things out, you can come to some understanding of the actual the actual situation in which you're in which then can give you the impetus to act uh in one way or another that's actually appropriate to the situation as opposed to blindly going along with whether with whatever your emotions are telling you at the time because as you said you know whether it's ted bundy or it's uh, a tyrannical government, you will be misled at some point. So being aware of how your, your system functions and how you can be misled and misused and abused and your trust can be abused, understanding how all that works and how that can, you know, how that actually plays out in your life and your being 
personally, uh, is also a, a major uh, inoculation mm-hmm. that I think should be mandatory. Yeah, <laughs> mandatory. Yeah, jab. Yeah. All right. Well, there are a lot more points in the article, so we'll we'll give a link to both versions of it, the audio visual version and the the article on tablet website. And I recommend you check it out. We will be talking more another time. So everyone, thanks and take care.